The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. So anyway, we're finishing up here in uh, the very end of chapter 2. Last week we talked about um, oneness, and so we'll kind of build on that this week, go into chapter 3 for a few verses there, um, and, and hopefully some of the things that the Lord has shared with me will be encouraging to you. I... Uh, you know, being a dad is probably, you know, the joy of my life. I, I love my kids, love my family, um, and uh, kids, kids are, are a blast, right? Uh, but they also have this other side to them, don't they? Right? And Kaylin, she's a, she's a wordsmith. Um, she, boy, she is a, a debater, if you will, um, and she is one who will continue to ask you, even after you say no or I'm not doing it until, she will just keep coming at you. She will just keep coming at you. And at some point, you just get a little weary, you know. You just drop the hammer and you just say, I'm never going to do it if you don't shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> and she still has a hard time after I say that. Uh, but I look at all of my kids, and what's fascinating to me is that uh, I have a, a fairly good memory uh, of my childhood, and um, I can see myself in them at different things. Even, even when they, they stumble and fail, I can remember different points in my life uh, back in time, and, and, and I relate to them, and I can see myself and, and, uh, in every one of them in different ways I see myself in them. And you know, and before I moved up here in 2000, uh, the year before I moved up here in 2010, uh, my dad passed away. And I didn't know at the time uh, until, you know, after he had passed, my dad was my best friend. I, I didn't realize that until after he was gone. I spent all of my time with him. We, we went on vacations together and um, just really just developed a deep relationship with my father. Uh, in my adult life, and and so I, uh, when he died, man, it, it was it was tough uh, for me. And I uh, I preached the funeral, and I also put together um, the like the memorial picture slideshow type thing with music, you know. So I went through all these pictures. Uh, boy, it was overwhelming. I just I wept as I would go through these pictures. But what was fascinating to me is, um, as I was going through those pictures, I spent a lot more time, you know, looking at photos and, and sort of getting ready things before I was even around, when he was a young man, you know, with his first car and um, when he was in his um, 20s and um, all the way up through, you know, when I came on the scene up, up until his death. And it was, it was fascinating because I was, when I was looking at those pictures of him around my, the age I was um, and, and thinking through my kids and everything, I, I could see myself in my dad. And, and so I, you know, here I am, um, 50, 51 now. And what's fascinating to me is the older I get, the more I see my, my dad. Like, I see myself in my dad. Like, I'm so like him in so many ways. In a whole other set of ways that I've, 
I'm not like him, right? Um, but, but things he liked to do, he, he was a project person. He liked to fix things. Um, it just seemed like he, he would just get his hands wrapped around all kinds of stuff. And, and, and I find myself, like, when I'm working, I think it's one of the reasons I like projects um, so much is I, I feel really close to my dad in, in those moments. Um, and and I, I always looked up to him. Because you, could, you know, if anything broke, you could go to my dad, and he'd figure out how to fix it. Um, and I just thought, man, he, he just knows so much. Uh, and, and so, like, I, I find connection in that. Um, about my dad. And so it's really interesting to me how in these family relationships that happens. And I think there's a lot for us to learn um, today as we look through just a few verses this morning and, and share some takeaways uh, with you in this, this process. But that, that kind of reminds me that um, like as I watch my kids and I watch them walk through different moments in their life, they're really being shaped by me, and I'm, I'm guiding them and trying to get them to a point where eventually I let them go. And I, all that I've done up until the point of where I let them go and, and I release them into adulthood um, is really I have a lot of control toward how they get shaped, you know, what they're allowed to do, what's tolerated in our home, um, different things of that, that nature. And, and so I'm really refining them, if you will. And trying to prepare them for the human beings that they will be for the rest of their lives. And that's a lot about, um, there's um, a lot of that in the text today. So let's just jump in. Uh, I'll explain some of it and then I'll come back and give you a few takeaways. And, and hopefully they encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your walk with each other. And we're starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. And remember, God has just spent all of this time talking about marriage and divorce. And really what it was about was oneness. Oneness with each other. Um, oneness with our, our spouses, oneness with him, oneness with um, our, our kids and our parents. And so we go on and, and he talks about how that's all broken down among the Jewish people. And really what we have is we see a frustration from the Lord and then we see how he's going to fix it and how he's going to take them through a, a, a repair process, if you will. And he starts and he says, you have wearied the Lord, with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? Now remember in Malachi, we keep getting this, these questions. It's sort of arrogant from the, the people of God. They keep questioning, well, how have we done that? How have we done that? God will use the prophet to say, this is the way you're functioning. And they'll be like, well, how are we doing that? And so he says, the Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? And so what, what was going on is, men, these people were, the people of God were looking around at people who were not following God, and they were, they were saying, men, these people have, they have all kinds of things. They have wealth, they have pleasure, uh, they have health. It doesn't pay to follow God. Where is God at? Where is the God of justice? He's blessing all of these people. We live in this place of shambles. Remember, the context was they're going back to rebuild the city that had been destroyed. They had been away in captivity for 70 years, and, and so now they've been back for about 100 years, and, and so still it's taking time to rebuild things. And they're looking around at people who don't follow God, and people who don't, they practice all these pagan religions, and they see that 
It, it appears to them by worldly standards that they, they have a lot of stuff. They have a lot of money and, and they have a lot of resources. And, and they're like, man, it doesn't, like, where is God at? Like, and so, he, so the Lord is saying, man, you weary me with your words. And you weary me by saying, looking at these people who are doing evil and saying, well, they, they must be okay. Or you look at yourself and you say, well, we, we are following God when clearly you're not following me. Your words are, are there, but your heart is not in it. And so he said, like, I'm wearied by this. He says, basically, you're broken. So verse 3, or verse 1 of chapter 3 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, the messenger was really, really important because this is how God spoke to people. It was an oral society. We look back on history, and we have the Bible, and that's why our view of the Bible is so high it's because we believe that God used these prophets to speak to them and share the word, and he authenticated the, the, the words that he spoke through the prophet through power, and they've been preserved for us. And we look back on them, and we have the word, and so God would send the messenger to speak to them. And a lot of times, they wouldn't listen to the messenger, like most of the time they didn't. They would for a little while, and there would be periods of, of revival, and then they would they would stumble, and, and he calls them adulterers over and over and over again. Well, the adultery they were committing was spiritually against the Lord himself. They were, um, they were prostituting themselves out to foreign gods, and, and, and the Lord wasn't okay with that. And so he says here, I will send my messenger, and the messenger is going to do something very important. He's going to prepare the way before me. And so he's, he's like saying, I'm coming. This is, so what we have here, and he says, um, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so like, what is this about? Well, if you, if you look at Mark chapter one, the gospel of Mark, this is the way Mark starts, and he says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, because Isaiah wrote about this as well, and that's why it was on Malachi's mind. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And so this was written 400 years before, that he would send a messenger. And so if you notice in your Bible, you flip over a couple of pages from Malachi, and you'll see it's a blank sheet. So for 400 years, <clears throat> there were no messengers, no prophets of God, no word from God. And God says to the, to the people, his chosen people in the Old Testament through the prophet Malachi, he says, his, his famous last words, we're leading up to them as we close out this um, book of the Old Testament, I'm going to send a messenger, and that messenger is going to prepare the way for me. In other words, a prophet is going to come, and after that prophet, I'm coming. And we look back and we go, man, that happened. And so that's why Mark writes about it. And so what we see in the scriptures is John the Baptist came on the scene, and he started preaching a baptism of repentance. He was the first prophet that the people of Israel had seen in four centuries. 
And so there was quite a stir around what was going on with John the Baptist. And people were going out to the wilderness, and they were listening to his teaching. And he was teaching with raw power and authority, man. And and there was a following. He was gaining a following. And then Jesus comes on the scene. They were contemporaries. They actually were related. They were cousins. There were three months between their uh, uh, age difference. And so John the Baptist prepares the way by there's a following after John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Malachi, 400 years before that event happens, prophesies that God is saying, there will be a prophet who comes and he will prepare the way for me. And so we see that this is the miraculous thing of the Bible is that, man, like that's amazing when we see these prophecies that are fulfilled. And if you study the New Testament, you will see that the, the um, apostles spent all of their time searching the scriptures. Well, what scriptures were they searching? They were searching the Old Testament scriptures. They were searching the prophets. They were searching books of Isaiah, Malachi, and all of these books that we've been studying the last year. And what were they doing? They were proving that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so here we have 400 years before the event happens, the Lord says, this prophet will rise up and he will prepare the way for me and then I myself will come, okay? And so it's a prophecy, a messianic prophecy. Well, it goes on in these next um, few verses, and it talks about what will happen when he comes. And he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Well, who are the Levites? Well, we learned last week. Malachi, as he's talking about this oneness, he's saying, man, he he preaches about the Levitical priesthood. And so Levi was the first priest. And so the the Levites were the priests. And I taught you how in the New Testament, we're all turned into priests of God. And so right here, he's saying, man, he will send a refiner. He will come and he will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So he starts with saying, man, you weary me with your words. You you question where my existence is. You question where I'm at. You don't live for me. You're all talk. You're no heart. You're broken. So what's going to happen? I'm going to send a prophet, and that prophet's going to prophesy and prepare a way for me then I'm going to come, and when I come, I'm going to do a refining work that takes and shifts people into a priestly state where they can offer acceptable sacrifices. And so we know in the New Testament, we're like, whoa, man, I didn't know Malachi had so much in connection with the New Testament. And he does. And the reason he does is because the writers of the New Testament knew everything that Jesus taught, and Jesus was basically teaching them, I'm everything that the Old Testament said um, who I was, and I'm here to come and make a way for you to be uh, pleasing to me in my sight. And so then we get to verse 5. Now, in, in prophecy, what happens often when we look at Messianic prophecies they're always, we'll see them connected, and there'll be the prophecy of both the first and second coming of Christ connected. And so this is clearly the first 
coming of Christ, and he has come. That prophecy has been fulfilled. We know that Jesus literally um, walked the face of the planet and that he claimed to be God, and Christians all over the world for the last 2,000 years have, have agreed with that and said, man, we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. <clears throat> and so these Old Testament or the, the New Testament apostles would search the Old Testament um, scriptures and they would make proclamations, they would preach that Jesus was the Messiah. And here I, <clears throat> here I stand 2,000 years later searching the Old Testament uh, scriptures and proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And this will go on, and this will continue to go on until the second part of the prophecy is fulfilled. So we can look back and go, man, we have a clear advantage, because sometimes we look at the apostles and go, oh, it'd be so much easier to follow Jesus when he was actually here, and if I could see him and touch him and, and walk with him and hear from him and see him with my physical eyes. Not so. We have, a, we have an incredible advantage because they had to wrestle with, was he indeed the Messiah? Even though they could see him doing miraculous works and they saw them, they still had to wrestle with doubt in their lives. And we see that in all of them. And so we look back and now we see that he in fact rose from the dead and we have all of the history that they left for us. And we have 2,000 years of church history and all of the miraculous events of the church moving forward and growing and the kingdom of Christ spreading just like he said it would. And, and, and so we can rely on that and know that, that man, my faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Man, there's, there's evidence that I can um, rely on to testify the, of the truth of the word of God. And so we look back and we go, man, the, 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 the first part has been fulfilled. We have a historical record of it. Well, when we get to verse 5, it's about the second part. Because he says, so I will come to put you on trial. And I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord. Well, all of those things were connected to the um, uh, Mosaic law. And so these were things that you were not supposed to do. So basically, he's saying, I will come and I will make a judgment and put on trial anyone who has offended the law and does not um, fear me. This is off in the future. This is yet to be fulfilled. And so we look off into the future. We, we stand sort of in between the prophecy that is already fulfilled and the prophecy that is coming in the future. And, 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 and so I think what we're going to do, like here, what we're going to do is the next series I'm going to teach is I think I'm going to call it the return of the king. And we're going to work through how Jesus is coming back and what that means and the implications for us. And so like we're in this moment, when he comes back, then all people will be put on trial. And these verses in two through four, they are about what God does in a refining process and how that trial will play itself out. And so when we look at this whole text and we go, okay, well, well, how do I apply that to my life today? And what are the things that might be encouraging to me? What are the things that I might need to know? What are the things that I might need to be thinking about and surrendering to the Lord. Here's the first one. You need to be aware that words weary the Lord. Okay? 
When I pretend I'm good with Jesus and I'm not, it wearies him. When, you, when you're like, well, I know I have a relationship with Jesus, but you don't surrender anything to him, and you don't walk with him in obedience, you don't hear what he's calling you to step into, then merely what you're saying just becomes words. And it's wearisome to the Lord. It's like the child who you've told no that keeps on saying, well, this, well, this, well, this. And you're all of a sudden like, no, you're wearying me. It's not going to happen. Well, why? Because I said it's not, right? And so we look at this and we need to know that, man, if we're constantly like trying to even, like I think our words, we say, well, I never say those things to anybody. Well, maybe you're saying them to yourself and that's the most wearisome thing. But you keep telling yourself with words that you're right with Jesus and you're clearly not right with Jesus because you're not walking with him. That's wearisome to the Lord. It's wearisome when he hears us um, pretend that we are good with Jesus when we clearly are not. It's wearisome when we say, where is God? Where is God in my situation? And oftentimes we hear people say this. I talked about my trip to the homeless mission when I was in college last week and how I changed the sermon. And one of the reasons that, I, again, I changed it like, just, just to kind of illustrate the point is the guy said, God has never done anything for me. And, and that's a common theme, whether a person may be poor as dirt like this guy was and homeless, or a person is extremely wealthy. Sometimes the attitude is formed, well, God has not done anything for me. Where are you, God? I'm struggling with cancer right now. Where are you, God? My, my marriage is falling apart. Where are you, God? That's wearisome to the Lord. Now, God can use that if our hearts are in the right con, uh, condition and we really are seeking for him to show up. But if we're just seeking him to show up that we might win a jackpot around our circumstances and they might be shifted and we go on our merry, our merry way and we never do surrender to the Lord, that's wearisome. It's wearisome to him. And so he's looking for us to surrender. And whether even when we surrender, there's no guarantee that our health is going to be good. There's no guarantee that there's going to be protection, that we're not going to walk through difficult moments. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that we are more like Christ in our sufferings than any other time. We will suffer. I've suffered. I've walked through suffering in my life before. Sometimes the suffering has been brought on by my own disobedience. Sometimes the suffering is just because of the fall of the world. So sometimes I'm responsible for the suffering because of my ignorance. And sometimes I'm just suffering because the world that I live in is 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 oppressed and broken and there's a curse on it. And that's what the whole second coming of Jesus that is prophesied is about, is coming and fixing and lifting that curse physically from what he's already lifted spiritually. And so like when we look at that, man, the Lord is looking for us to be walking with him. And when I walk with him and I'm not wearying him with my words and my heart is completely surrendered to him and I find out some difficult news, he is there. I'm not asking where is God? I'm asking, Lord, I need help. I know you were there. Not where are you at or why did you have this happen? I know why it happens. You told me why it was going to happen. You told me by the sweat of my brow I would toil in this world. You told me that death would come because of the sin of mankind. I'm not surprised when these things happen. I'm not surprised when I, I hear that someone has been diagnosed with a terminal disease. I hear it all the time. It's not surprising to me. It's disappointing. I weep with them, I hurt with them, and it's okay to weep and hurt, but we should not be surprised by it because the Lord has told us that it will happen. 
And it will continue to happen until Jesus comes back and he reclaims the planet for himself. You see, right now, the planet is not God's in the sense of control. The Bible tells us that the prince of the power of the air is the one who controls the planet that we live on right now. It is his. And this whole thing that we're living out in life is not about the legacy that we leave with the wealth that we create or the things that we accomplish on this side of eternity or even the relationships we build with each other. The whole thing is about the glory of God. The whole thing. And so spiritually, I'm walking in a way in which as I surrender to him, and I don't just weary him with lip service, but I surrender my whole heart to him, then what happens is I start bringing glory to God. And I'm not asking, where is God? I'm asking, what does God want me to do in this moment when I'm faced with this crisis? Whether it be about my health, my family's health, my friend's health, things that I'm supposed to do in leading the church forward, people I'm supposed to go eat lunch with. I'm not asking, where is God? I'm asking, God, where do you want me to be? And there's a big difference. And so the words weary the Lord when we're asking him where he is at instead of asking him where he wants us to be in this moment. Because he said, my sheep hear my voice, they listen, and they follow me. And so we are to be in this listening mode constantly. And if we're not, then we're wearying the Lord. And so this keeps us from oneness with him, and it wearies him. And it wearies him because there's good news. And the good news is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. He knows our weakness. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to help us overcome our weakness. Remember, he says in the passage, I'm going to send a messenger, and he's preparing the way for what? For me. For me to come and do what? Come and help you with your weaknesses. So in all points, Jesus was tempted like we are, yet he did not sin, and so he can empathize with us. And so that's the first takeaway of today's talk is words weary the Lord, but he knows we're broken. And he also knows, and we need to know, that Jesus is our desire. That's what um, verse 1 says. I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Now, what's interesting about this is that it says the Lord will come to his temple. When Jesus was eight days old, they took him to the temple to be sacrificed. When Jesus was 12 years old, he got separated from his parents. They couldn't find him. And what did he say to his mother? Would you not know that I had to be in my father's house to be about his business? When Jesus was 30, about 33 years old, he went into the temple and he cleared it of the money changers. Just prior to Jesus being crucified, on Palm Sunday, he rode a donkey into town, and he went into the temple, and he cleared it. He went into the temple on many occasions and healed people. He went into the temple, and he um, uh, taught frequently. And so Jesus is always about the business of coming into the temple. And so when he comes, he also comes And he describes us, the New Testament describes us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he comes to the temple. But then it goes on to say, the messenger of the covenant. 
Well, what did Jesus say when he instituted the Lord's Supper on the night before he was betrayed? He said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Take, drink, this is my blood, which represents what? The new covenant. He's the messenger of the new covenant. And he says, and it says, whom you desire will come. So here's the point, is that not everyone realizes it, but everyone desires Jesus. But everybody doesn't realize it. So we look at people that we're doing life with, and if we realize it, we're walking in such a way that we realize that Jesus is my greatest desire. He makes meaning out of all of my experiences. He helps me with my weaknesses. He walks with me. Like I hear him um, through his word. He confirms things that I need to walk out in obedience. He's told me that I am, I, I am a sinner and I'm separate from God and I'm enemies with him. And he's come to help me with that. If I will repent of my sin, I will be reunited with Christ. And so now God looks at me differently. Like he, and so like all of these things... Like we see that he is our desire. And so when we, when we understand that and our minds come to a realization of that, then we start bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, like, um, kindness, goodness. All of these things become ours, like things that money can't buy. They're things of the kingdom. They're actually things that make money more enjoyable. And so like, People are always trying to fulfill a desire. And what the, what the Lord is teaching us here is that the world is broken and chaotic when anything but Jesus is sought. That's what's wrong with the world today, is that we look around and nobody's seeking Jesus. Even the people who claim to know Jesus, a good majority of them are wearying the Lord with, his, with their words. As we see, man, like what politician doesn't say that they know God? Hey, they all sort of bless, you know, God bless America. But yet we look at their lives and we go, where is the Lord in the way that they're living their lives and the things that they're saying and the way that they treat each other? Like, even in the way that they treat one another, we can see, so why would we bring up politicians? Because they're supposed to be the leadership of our country. These are the people that we put in power to make decisions. And so when we see that, we go, man, there are people that are in control who are wearying the Lord with their words. They pretend to know the Lord. They don't know the first thing about following Jesus or surrendering or humbling themselves before God and walking out in obedience. And why is that? It is because I think that the message of the gospel has been watered down in the pulpits and it's been an easy believism that there's just much grace and it doesn't matter how you live when that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus says, when my grace hits you, it will shift you. And you will no longer be the same, and you will walk in obedience. As a matter of fact, that's how people will know that you know me, by your love for one another and your love for me and your willingness to walk out in obedience what I've called you to. And you no longer will weary me with your words because I will have shifted you and made you into a Levitical priesthood that is offering a, an acceptable sacrifice. And so we look at that and go, whoa, man, the world is broken when anything but Jesus is sought. This is what Jesus' half-brother taught in the book of James, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Listen to this. Think about the world you live in. This was written two millennia ago. 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he, he, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's he saying there? Like, like our desire, like we have this desire in us, this thing that drives us. And sometimes that desire, if it is not in a pursuit of Jesus, it will lead us down a path of sin. This is how we end up with sexual addicts, people who are strung out on, 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 on things that are perverted before that God has given us that are good, and they get perverted. And, and a person, rather than pursuing Jesus, they start to pursue these things to fulfill a desire that which only Jesus can fulfill. And so they're trying to fulfill that desire, man, and then they end up going and trying to fill it with a different thing, and all of a sudden they are strung out and intoxicated on perverted images, and they need more and more and more and more. Or a person gets strung out on drugs, and the same thing happens. They say, oh, yeah, bless them. Or a person gets strung out on things for their home, and they need more and more. Or cars or experiences, and trips, and just all of these things. I need it, I need it, I need it. Like, sure, they're all great, and they're all fun, but that what you need is Jesus. And like, what he's saying is that God jealously desires that thing that causes you to desire other things. He wants that foremost being directed toward him. And when it is, man, there is a transformation that takes place. And so that brings us um, to the difference between the righteous and the wicked is awakening. It's the, the awakened are refined while the asleep are removed. That's what this text is teaching. And that, that the New Testament clearly teaches is that what we, we say, man, we say it in so many different ways. We say that a person is transformed. We say that they're born again. We say that they get saved. We, here I'm calling it awakened the scripture says, awake, O sleeper, from your slumber. Awake to what? Awake to the fact that your desire is Jesus. He is God. He created you. And when you are awakened to that, then you go through a refining process. And if you are not awakened to that, you are removed from the whole process itself. Verses 2 through 5, let's look at them again with this explanation and just kind of read back through them. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. He is the fire, is what this scripture says. Or a launderer's soap. What is that? Well, that's a person who was in the business of dyeing cloths. They would get the cloth extremely clean before they would dye it, and they would use this soap to do it. 
He will sit as a refiner. He's not only the fire, he sits as the refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable. And so he refines them. And then we get to verse 5 and it says that he puts the rest on trial and they are removed, says the Lord Almighty. And so he refines those who are his, and he removes those who are not. And the difference between the righteous and the wicked is the, the righteous are awakened to Jesus as their desire, and they welcome the refining process, and the wicked resist it. The, the wicked stand away from God as he reaches down and he's created them and they have this desire and they choose to pursue other things to fill this desire that is within them and they stand against it and they resist the refining process, then what happens is they are removed from the process totally while those who look at it and go, man, the Lord has chosen me. The Lord wants me. The Lord has died for me. The Lord prepared. He had a prophet come and prepare the way, and then he came himself for me, and he died for me. And Jesus, like, he loves me. Like, he is my all in all, and I'm awakened to that. I'm, I'm like, man, that is my desire. Then whatever I do, like if I'm going on a trip or I'm working on my home or I'm doing a project or I'm out in the woods hunting or whatever I'm doing, my desire is already filled, so this just amplifies things. I'm fulfilled before I go to experience something. I've learned the secret of contentment in all things. And so I don't need all of the pursuit of the world because I've understood I'm awakened to the fact that Jesus is my desire. And so as I pursue Jesus, whatever experiences I may have in this world, that's great. And whatever experiences I don't get to experience that everybody else is posting on Facebook, I'm still good. Why? Because I'm awakened to the truth of the gospel. It has impacted my life. And there's no experience on this side of eternity that can enhance the truth that the gospel has already transformed me. So why does he do this? Why does he do this? Why does he refine one and remove the other? It is for acceptable offerings. It's the gold and the silver and the dross. This is about Jesus' glory. That's what this is about. Now, I'm going to ask Sean to go ahead and come and prepare, but here's the deal. is a refiner. He takes things, and he puts them in the heat of the fire. And he takes the gold, and he puts it in there, and, and as he puts it in there and he applies the heat, there is a separation that takes place. And so the dross, all of the stuff that is, has no value, is separated from everything that is pure. And the refiner keeps scraping it away and keeps adding heat and keeps scraping the dross away and keeps scraping the dross away until finally it is ready. And how does he know when it is ready? He can see himself in it. And he looks and he sees his reflection in the purity of the gold and he knows it is ready. It is, it is arrived. It is at its point. It is time. And that is the big idea of today's talk, is Jesus wants to see himself in me. 
Like, and here's, here's what I've learned. Is that the older I get, the more that I value not just that Jesus wants to see himself in me, but I want to see myself in Jesus. Just like I now am older and see myself in my dad, I'm learning to see myself in Jesus and not Jimmy. And my life is so much more meaningful. And so I want you to be encouraged today to know, man, that the, the, the world, it presents struggles to us. We struggle against the resistance of, of, of sin and, and, and not blowing it and our attitudes being right. We struggle about keeping our desire pure. But if we would just know and be awakened to the fact, Jesus is my desire. And, and, and I, he wants to see himself in me. It's not so much that I have to please him. He just wants to see himself in me. And all I have to do is surrender to him. All I have to do is listen, and he will show me where I'm to surrender. And as he shows me where I'm to surrender, and he takes me through this process of refining, and it's hard to walk out that obedience, he is the fire. He's not just the refiner sitting outside the fire. He's the fire. He's the fire in me. He's the fire being applied to me, but he's also the refiner, and he's looking for himself in me, and he will bring me to a point as I surrender, and he will remove the dross, and not only will he see himself more clearly in me, but I will see myself more clearly in him, and that's what my journey has been like, and so for, for 30 years now, I've just been surrendering to this, and I I've been awakened to the fact that he is my desire and he just intensifies it. So for 30 years, my passion is not waning. It is increasing and my longing to see him as he is intensifies with each day. And at the right time, when my birthday and death day are complete, and he looks down and has applied enough heat to my life, and he will say, he is ready. And I will be caught up to spend eternity with him. I don't fear death. I don't, this world has no hold on me. As discouraged as I may get in my flesh, I need only to be reminded of what my true desire is, and I can walk through anything this world has to throw at me. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Do you see yourself in Christ? Does Christ see himself in you? Like, do you look at the world through that lens? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. A word of the Lord given to us to help us not to discourage us, but to empower us to live and come boldly to the throne of grace and make our requests known because he knows us in our weaknesses. And so then this moment in your weaknesses, what is the Lord asking you to surrender? Maybe today there's an area that you know that you've been walking in dis disobedience and he's just saying, man, I want you to surrender there. I want to move, remove some dross from your life. You're my daughter. I want to take this away. I want to help you with that. You're my son. I want to take this away. I want to help you with that.
Maybe for you, for the first time, you just understood the gospel. And you said, well, you know what? I didn't know that that's what Jesus was all about. And, and maybe for the first time, this whole desire talk has brought you to the point of awakening. Well, the Lord gives us a will, and we're able to surrender it to him. And so as part of the refining process, when the heat is applied, it is, are you ready to surrender your life to Jesus? Not your words, but your life. If you're here and you've never done that, then it's a simple thing. Like, it's a simple but deep thing. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of surrender. And you and only you know if you're letting it go. So what I would encourage you to do is pray right now in this moment and surrender your life to Jesus. And then I would say, look, man, if you have done that, tell somebody. You could tell me with using a connection card. Tell me on your way out the door. Send me an email. But tell somebody. Don't keep your mouth shut. Let somebody know that you've surrendered to the Lord. I'm going to pray us out and give you some time to reflect as we sing this morning. Um, I don't, you know, sometimes I feel led to ask people to raise their hands if you made a decision for the Lord. But here's what I know, man. If the Lord got a hold of you today and you surrender, all of hell can't stop you from telling someone. It couldn't stop me. The first thing I wanted to do was proclaim what had happened in my life. And so nail it down and, and believe in your heart, but confess with your mouth the work the Lord has done on you today. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the word from Malachi today. We thank you, Lord, that you came to help us make pleasing offerings to you. And we are the offering, Lord. I thank you for this body of believers, and I pray for your blessing upon each one, upon each individual, Lord, upon each family, each husband, each wife, each son, each daughter. Lord, help us to reflect your glory as we walk through this thing called life and are refined in a way that you can see yourself in us. We love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.